Welcome to The Animated Journey, a podcast featuring interviews with animation professionals working in television, film, and games. I'm your host, Angela Ensminger, and today I'm pleased to present part two of my interview with Michael Tucker, associate producer at Double Fine Productions in San Francisco, California. In this interview, Michael and I discuss what it was like transitioning from being a student at San Jose State University to becoming a production assistant intern at Pixar Animation Studios, to being hired full-time at Pixar as a production assistant, and then to becoming a producer at Double Fine. Michael also talks about the importance of being nice to people, being able to network and communicate well, and why it's important to have a zest for learning. I know that all of you will enjoy hearing the interview as much as I enjoyed speaking with Michael. So on to part two. Going back to when you were an intern, how did you get your internship? Is that something that, you know, I know a lot of listeners, especially the ones that are in school, are really curious about how one even goes about getting an internship at a major company? Um, that one, again, was entirely, I would say, an ancillary benefit of being nice people, or at least having a good attitude. So for that, I never actually directly myself applied to the Pixar internship. Our faculty at San Jose were constantly looking out for ways to place students in jobs. So they're always looking out for everyone. And they had heard that that internship was coming up and that it was for production. And over the years, they had built a relationship with Pixar. We, we've had a, a couple of students from our program go and become art directors there. And so the faculty that had heard about that they knew that I had been doing a lot of production work in my side projects, those game projects I was doing in school. And they, they just asked for a copy of my resume. So I sent it to them, I updated it, uh, and they just, they just asked for it one afternoon. Uh, so I sent it to them that afternoon and I forgot about it. Uh, and then about four months later, I think, when I was working for the Romeros, I had gotten an email, I think, from someone at Pixar saying they would want to interview. And that went well, and eventually I landed the internship while I was still at school. But what is interesting to me was for those first couple of gigs, I had gotten them entirely because people had heard that I had had a good attitude or that I had just been nice to people. You know, like even when school was tough, I didn't I tried not to become a shitty person because everyone was stressed. But, you know, the teachers themselves were known for being a little abrasive. Uh, and some, a, a lot, of, I would say a not insignificant amount of students reacted negatively to that uh, and had a, a tense relationship with the faculty because they pushed the students really, really hard. But I, I remained on fairly good terms with them. And so when that came up, for whatever reason, because I hadn't known them too well at that time, they had put forth my resume to Pixar. Uh, and in the end, that paid off. So uh, that was another instance of me just getting lucky because I had been, I, I had tried to be nice to people who I thought knew more than me. How were you able to do that in light of the fact that they were abrasive? Because I know that some people when they come up against that, they tend to bristle. And mm -hmm. sometimes bristling turns into heated discussions and sometimes arguments. So how are you able to remain calm and not take what they were telling you personally? 
I don't know. It's like, it, that's, that's like a, just a personal temperament kind of thing. You know, for me in the end, even in the most brutal times for these teachers, I knew that their entire job was just to try to, to get us to do okay out in the world. And I knew their backgrounds were, was coming from the film industry of the 70s and 80s, which were like in, in, in notorious for not valuing people and having people just be disposable once they were done working with them. And I knew that they were training us from that point of view uh, and toughening us up so that way we, you know, we would be able to deal with that and not be surprised by it. So when they were brutal and sometimes it was embarrassing when you're getting like, I wouldn't say torn down, but I wouldn't say discipline, but when you're getting a harsh critique in front of all of your friends, you know, we had classes of 30 to 50 people because we were at public school, you know, that can be embarrassing uh, and tough, but, you know, I don't really turn that into grudges. I just kind of turn it into, the, oh, I should work harder. Oh, like they're criticizing that and they were trying to train me a little bit right there. So you just kind of drink a beer when you get home and then you just move on from there. But it has never paid off to have a grudge, you know, or to be prickly around people. And even when you're like the most stressed and somebody's being annoying, you know, you just find a way to deal with it. Because in the end, like people thinking outside of your own head and thinking of what, what people see when they see you, if they see somebody who has a, a kind of shitty attitude, that's what you become. It doesn't matter if that's what you're not, what you are on the inside, that's what you become. And then to their point of view, and as far as they know, that's what you are. Uh, and I really don't want to be seen as too prickly of a person because uh, that is just a career ender, you know, uh, and I want to do really cool things and really exciting things and certain points of view, like remembering to be excited that we get to work in amazingly fun things. That kind of also helps keep me from being too angry or even sad or just annoying or like, I mean, like annoyingly abrasive because it's kind of really cool. And I'm part, not, I'm, I'm not just lucky for being able to get pretty good gigs so far, but I'm lucky that I get to be such a minority of humanity that gets to work in this stuff. And constantly enjoying that, I think, helps me just from being prickly. Like right now, I'm, I'm sitting in a meeting room at work and I'm surrounded by pretty awesome concept art for this game called Psychonauts 2 uh, that we have coming up in a couple of years. Uh, and it's just the coolest concept art ever. And seeing that and, and realizing that I get to sit here and, and see this stuff and this is where I work and remembering how lucky I am to be around this stuff kind of just keeps me from being too much of a jerk. But I am a jerk sometimes, so I have to go out of my way to remind people that I'm not always a jerk when I do that. That's a good attitude to have. And that's a good point. Cause I feel like as artists, our work can become our person sometimes for better or for worse. And so mm -hmm. I found that, you know, I've done this. I think every single artist in their lifetime has done this where someone's giving you a critique and it may not even be harsh. It may just be a critique and yeah. it's like an arrow to the heart. And I like uh -huh. what you said about, you know, realizing there's a reason they're telling you this. You know, mm -hmm. it's so that you'll get better, not so that you'll crumble. 
Yeah, yeah. One of the uh, best things you can do is looking at something that you're that you're getting critiqued on and finding out what your weakness is and just saying to yourself, like very honestly, like, oh, I do, I suck at that. Like that's a thing that I suck at. Uh, and getting like that bandaid ripped off, like you kind of realize that it's not even like a bandaid being ripped off. You just you thought like I, whatever you thought, like you're like, oh, that's exactly it. Okay, well, I'll just approach that. And and you like you forget to be shameful. You forget to be ashamed by being more excited to learn it. And I, I like to look at like I love science stuff as well. Uh, and I love really iconic scientists like uh, Richard Feynman and uh, Carl Sagan. And like one of the coolest things about Richard Feynman, like he's one of the smartest people ever. But watching interviews with him, you realize like a lot of the stuff that he learned to do he learned them just because he started off by completely being okay with not knowing that how to do it. He would work, he'd work around people who were masters in computer science and he knew nothing about it. Uh, and he just asked every question and studied it and, and took enjoyment in learning stuff that he admitted not knowing and just so enjoying learning so much propelled him into becoming a genius in all of these things. And I think that's, how you deal with it is if you put something forth and someone says, oh, you're really bad at that. Then you just be like, you realize like, oh yeah, like it's totally illuminated to me now that I did not know that. And now I get to go learn it. And labeling your strengths and your weaknesses so you can directly attempt to, to learn from them, uh, I think is a great thing. But you have to realize how to change your perspective so you're not you're not feeling like you are personally less because you're not good at something that you tried to do. You're gonna suck at everything when you try to do it. And you should just be okay because you get that's how you learn. It's cool to learn. And speaking of learning, how did you transition from being an intern to being a full-time production assistant at Pixar? And then how were you able to transition from being a PA at Pixar to now being an associate producer? or an assistant producer, I should say. It really varies. Part of it is just how you present yourself. Because there'll be certain times where people's perception of you may shift dramatically if you're going from one job to another or from one role to another, but your knowledge may not really change at all. And so you suddenly go to a new thing and you realize like, oh, these people think I'm way more professional than I am. And that's just kind of when you're like, oh, well, I just need, you know, like you, you keep the front up and then you become the front that you put up, you know, like you set a thing that is higher that you think people want you to be and that you would like to be. And then you work hard to be that and to match that. And so for me, that was, that was what I learned a lot of as an intern was when I started, I was just, I would openly admit, I don't know anything. I'm really dumb. I'm incredibly lucky to be here. Uh, and there is a benefit always to admitting that to some degree, because uh, for me, at least in my case, that's almost always true. But at a certain point, people don't care how much you you don't know. They they don't really want to hear you say how stupid you are. They want to be able to trust you to do a thing. And so even if you still feel as stupid as ever, yeah, you have to look at your audience and go like, do they want me like do they do they want to know that i don't know how to do this yet 
or do they just want to be able to trust that I can do it so they can go worry about their own thing? And for me, I think part of the big professional transition was being able to keep up that front and then going in and learning how to do what I thought was expected of me. So then people knew that they could trust me to be that kind of professional. And when I kind of, when I realized how to do that, it was kind of like the veil of the world being lifted up in front of me. Cause I realized at that point, nobody in any business, no matter like anybody around here in San Francisco that I see that walk around super professional, it dawned on me that none of them know, maybe some of them feel more certain that they know what they're doing, but probably a lot of people just put up this facade that they know what they're doing because their coworkers count on them to, to be able to do what's expected of them. And everyone's just kind of figuring it out as they go. And so I think being a PA at Pixar, especially, there was a good chunk of me kind of coming to that realization. Uh, and then coming out here to San Francisco as an assistant producer, there was a lot of me realizing how to cope with that realization. Being like, okay, like, it, yeah, it's still fascinating. I don't have to say it all the time. Uh, in fact, you know, maybe people are made uncomfortable when I say that a little bit because they just want me to do the thing, you know, and not, not constantly say how incredible it is that no one knows and that we're on the same level as everybody. It's all a facade, which was, it was the most fascinating thing to me. But I, th I think a big chunk of professionalism uh, is learning how to say the right things at the same time, whether or not realizations are the same as they always have been, uh, or if your feelings are always the same, uh, and more of knowing timing and how to communicate the right information at the right time. That is excellent advice. And what you said reminds me a lot of, um, I've heard of this thing called the imposter syndrome, where people get into a position and they think that they think they don't know what they're doing and they're afraid of other people finding out. And it sounds like you took the opposite track of you just willfully admitted, I may not know, but I will find out. And then eventually you just became more comfortable and realized, even if I feel this way, I may not necessarily need to say it. I just need to show them that they can trust me and that I can do the work. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly important. The imposter syndrome, it's funny you mentioned that because this just this previous week, I had seen this thing on this website called Gama Sutra, which is uh, like an industry news website for the games industry. And one of their feature articles was saying that surprising amount of percent of people in the games industry suffered from imposter syndrome and why what possible reasons there would be for that. And, it, and like that article itself was shared by somebody else I knew from the games industry. Uh, and I just thought it was surprising because like, I think that is something that everybody deals with at some point. If you try really hard to work and to, to get to work in a industry that you want to work in, you spend so much time trying to get there because you respect it or you admire it, or you just desire it so much that when you do get there, you've, you've had it on this pedestal for so long that to suddenly suddenly be on that pedestal as well, you feel like, oh, well, I should be looking up at it, not be among it. And that shift in mentality is a, a difficult, crucial part, I think, in everyone's career. And for me, what I kind of just came into was not necessarily I'm an imposter around all of these people 
who really know what they're doing, which I definitely did feel that for a large amount of time, especially at Pixar, because everyone there is, is so good at, at coming across professional. But it was really great to me to just realize, oh, everyone's an imposter. None of us know. And that's great because like I, I, I mentioned earlier, like I, I love learning. And so to me, it was exciting because then it's like, oh, not only do I get to learn, but like I almost get the edge because I love learning because everyone's so, it seemed to me like everyone was so focused on seeming like they already knew what they were doing that if I could just be open about really just enjoying learning and knowing where the limit of my knowledge was, then I could just openly get better and show that change. And, you know, like I, I look at a lot of people who I respect and I think they all did that as well. Like they just openly and unabashedly showcase their learning. You know, like I look uh, at Disney a lot because he was so cool at discovering stuff that was fascinating ahead of time and then making it widespread. Uh, and the way that he approached learning film, even as he already started making himself work in the film industry, uh, what I think is exactly a showcase of openly being excited about learning. You know, and I, I look at the, the trajectory of Steve Jobs' career and how he would find all these really cool things and technology. And even when they were brand new and nobody knew anything about them, he was just really excited to look at them and learn about them and find out what, what could be done with them. That that's what gave him the edge in his particular discipline. Then I look at Richard Feynman, you know, and, and this was a guy who, he was already like a famous scientist for his work on the Manhattan Project. And he just enjoyed learning about things. And through his enjoyment of starting out at ground zero and building up his knowledge on something from the absolute ground level, he could figure out new principles that would benefit some area of technology or science. And people admired him for that. And his criticism often was that everybody likes to look at these final emergent phenomena of things, but nobody liked looking at the very, very basic fundamental properties that became robust into these, these larger picture stuff. But admitting you don't know this basic stuff and really learning that and then studying it all the way up into these, these greater manifestations is how you get that big picture point of view. And I think that's what those business guys I mentioned earlier and a really fascinating mind like his, I think that's what makes them really cool is they enjoy getting to the big picture and knowing what comprises it. Where do you think this comes from, from you? You know, lots of people say that they love to learn, but you obviously love to learn and you actually put in the time and the effort to learn. You know, you sought out different books, you sought out different movies. Was that something that you always did even as a kid? Or was that something that you saw in other people that you admired, like you, you just mentioned, and then decided, you know what, I'm going to emulate what they're doing. I don't know. Like I was mentioning how I got into animation was it was just naturally what I'm drawn to because like it's just what I love. You know, like I love playing games as a kid, and so I was drawn to things about games. You know, like like the idea of them was cool. So like I would I would just naturally pursue all the aspects and components that made them up because they are everything that come together into making a game. Uh, and so I just so greatly enjoyed that. It wasn't that I was inherently interested in computer science or 
drawing or even production or or not I'm not really at all interested in the business aspects on their own of how a game is made but when you look at the final thing and then you take a step back and like oh well this goes into that and then this aspect goes into that if you stay fascinated by the thing that you love already then it just as naturally fascinating how how these different things like the more you look at the components of them, they get further away from this final product, but you know that it's always going to come together to this final thing. Uh, and it was the same for me for film. So like in the end, like the more you explore something, the more it becomes connected to other things as well. And it's to me, it's a lot like the principle of how you get lost exploring Wikipedia, you know, where there may be this one thing that you are, it may just be one thing that you are, legitimately curious enough about that you you go and you look it up on Wikipedia and you read that article. But if you really are so curious about that, then it's probably likely that you'll find something referenced in that article that contributes to, to this main article. And so you click on that and you read about that, even though you're not inherently interested in that, you're interested in the original thing you looked up. But if your interest stays and, and you are still curious, then eventually you go down that rabbit hole further and further. And in the end, like you, you not only learn all these components about the original thing, but you learn about this bigger picture and how these things are connected and knowing connections is the really valuable knowledge because that's something that you only find through research and personal curiosity and investigation. Uh, and that's something that not, a lot of other people know. So that's valuable knowledge to have these connections. Uh, and to me, just loving games and movies and stories, all of the ancillary research just out of my curiosity has led to a lot more learning. But a lot of the things that I've, I've learned about, they don't inherently interest me. It's just that they are a connection to other things that are cool. And then over time, you, you do develop these ancillary interests as well that you may not have had at the beginning. You know, and that's just, I think, goes a little bit into personal temperament. Going back to Double Fine, as an assistant producer now, what are some of your duties and what is your day-to-day -day like? Yeah, so, so one of the things that, that uh, you and I did at a huge place at Pixar was it was just every task that was given to you, you do it. There wasn't so much autonomy. It was just here are all of these things that need to get done. Welcome to being a part of the team. It is now your job to do a certain amount of these things, you know, and then people would delegate that work to you. At Double Fine, because my role, assistant producer is, is kind of like the game studio's way of saying production assistant, but it is also a bit different as well because it is a smaller studio and the role is, is I think, slightly, incurs slightly more responsibilities. Where here, um, there is a lot of dealing with publishers and, and platform orders. So, so, you know, in games, there are their consoles and you do a lot of work with either, you know, you would do it with Nintendo or Microsoft or Sony because they're the three big console makers, or you would deal with stuff on PC in which case most of your distribution methods would be dealing with either Valve, who make the Steam platform, or this platform called Good Old Games, or whatever else you dealt with. 
And so it's ultimately whoever owns the platform that we are selling or releasing our games on. I do a lot of work for certain projects and dealing with them. And so that means just filling out a lot of forms on their sites and then submitting our games for them to approve. It might mean talking with the studios that we outsource some of our work to, whether it's programming work or art asset work, and just checking with them and saying like, you know, how is this stuff coming along? When do you expect it will be done? And then whatever they say to me, passing that information on to whoever is going to be implementing it. So they know like in a week you'll be getting this thing. So uh, when you build your schedule, leave a space open to incorporate all of this work. And in dealing with a lot of that stuff, which is a lot more autonomous than it was at Pixar, because at a certain point, uh, we're such a small studio and there's only two, two and a half production people on actual projects, me uh, and another producer. And then we have our COO who does a fair amount of production work as well, but he's like a, a half producer because he's focused more on studio stuff. He's kind of like an executive producer where he manages the overall studio allocation per project. But because there is such little production support, a lot of it is me learning what needs to be done for a game and then kind of just being left alone and my bosses just trust me to think ahead and look for a problem or be like, you know, if this isn't going to be done on this time, I have to be the one that realizes, oh, that's going to affect this guy's work. I should let them know that they're not going to have this, so they should find something else to fill that time with so they don't have downtime. And nobody's going to tell me like, oh, are they going to be done on time? Is that going to cause a problem? I just have to think about it and anticipate it and sort of look for those problems or those pluses that may occur. Uh, in addition to that, I'm, I'm doing more typical PA support stuff on different projects if there is need for that. So one thing I started doing uh, just this past week was running play tests for uh, an upcoming game we have called Headlander, which is a, a very quirky 70s inspired science fiction game. And that is more typical note taking. Uh, we'll have a play tester in and they'll play the game and I'll just take notes of how they play it to some degree, answer and ask them questions. And then, you know, transcribe those notes and send it out to the project leads so that they can pull out the bugs from that and then incorporate any game changes that they may desire to make after reading those notes. So at a small studio, it's a little bit of everything that I do here now. Uh, whereas at Pixar, I would do basically just work that was given to me. It's kind of like grunt work, which is, you know, what any of us will have coming out of school so recently. All right. That is very good. It sounds like a a lot of various different projects there. And I like what you said too about, it sounds like a lot of it too is just not only people management, but time management and just being very aware of what is happening at all times and just making sure that the team knows too so that everything goes on schedule. Yeah, that's one of the fascinating things that I'm kind of in the process of learning now is that, you know, learning that kind of nobody knows what they're they're doing and it's all just that facade of professionalism, which I, I, there's got to be a more flattering way to say it, but in, in, a, in a certain sense, that's kind of what it is, that facade of professionalism. I'm realizing that games, they don't just get made. Everybody can't just go in, do their job, and then a game is, is cranked out. 
there is a lot of adjustment during the process. And there's a lot of like wrangling and tightening things, but there's also um, a lot of hiccups where you have to really manage people's time or push them in certain unexpected ways. And those are kind of like the bugs that manifest themselves in the process, not even in the software, but just bugs in the process that come up. So learning how to, to do that time management aspect and that project management aspect is uh, a big new thing that I'm learning right now. Because like, again, you know, I, I went to school to train for particularly art, you know, and even in those projects in school, the, the game projects that I did as a side, I never finished them. I was terrible at that. And I was weak at that. And here I am doing production stuff and I'm learning all of these things and directly dealing with those things that I was weak at. And it is a really great thing to learn. Uh, it's also something that never was inherently interesting to me. I was never drawn to learning how to do this before because I, I just was never interested in this project management or time management or to a certain degree, this kind of organization, like this kind of organizational skill. But now having worked through the game process and logically getting to, to this part of making a game where you have to have those kind of organizational skills, suddenly it is illuminated to me now. It is interesting because I see how it ties into that thing called game making that I am interested in. And so it, it is very fascinating to me to, to have to learn this now. It, it's also difficult, but you know anything that, that is worth learning is difficult. And if you are fascinated, then you gladly deal with that difficulty. What are some things as far as skills and traits are concerned that would be beneficial for either students who are currently in school or those who are out of school but who want to work in production? What are some things that you feel they should focus on or start learning now so that they can be more prepared? I think one thing we touched up on earlier was just being okay admitting what you don't know. One of the cool things about being either just out of school or being new to a, a studio if you've switched jobs recently is like you get to be the new person. And so not only is it is it uh, okay for you to not know something, but it's almost expected. You know, like if you go in and you like try to act super professional and you're like, I'm gonna impress them, they're gonna know that it's bullshit and it'll, it, it probably won't reflect terribly well on you. But if you go and you're excited about like, oh, I don't know how to do that. I probably should, but I don't, do you mind explaining it to me? People kind of dig that because then they're like, oh, I like this person. Like they may not know it now, but they're going to learn all this stuff and they're already pretty excited. So people love enthusiasm, not, you know, not too much, which is sometimes draining on, on the people you work with, but they want someone they can work with and somebody who will learn how to do stuff without being a drag, you know? So being okay and uh, with not knowing stuff, I think is, is a really strong point. Another thing is just uh, basic communication skills are incredibly valuable. And it's weird how many people don't have those. It's not even weird, like it, it's incredibly beneficial to the people who do have them. And so if you're somebody who listens to these podcasts because you're curious, you probably do have them. But there's a lot of people in, in these industries who are incredibly smart and valuable in certain ways, but 
are very difficult at communicating. They're, they're very difficult to communicate with or they're bad at communicating. And so being able to read them, find out sort of what it is they're trying to say or how it is they hear things, and then re regurgitating what you're trying to say through that filter that is specially attuned to them, that will forever add incredible value, I think, to people. And so, so being a great, really what that distills down to is being a good listener, because being a good listener is essentially what being a good communicator is. And you'll hear that in all of those sort of cheesy motivational speeches and stuff. But, you know, it's really just thinking about people on a personal level, not even just professional level, because you ultimately have to go through that filter of, you know, who somebody is that you're talking to, to talk to them in a professional capacity. And so being able to read that is, is really, really valuable. But yeah, that's kind of how I get by is I, I listen to people and I admit how dumb I am. And then my enthusiasm for learning is how I, I deal with both of those things. That is excellent. And uh, coming towards the end here, where can people find you online? And are you currently working on any personal projects of your own? Yeah, I don't know. I really, I use LinkedIn stuff for professional stuff a lot. Uh, I use Twitter a little bit, which if you just look through uh, Double Fine, you might find uh, some stuff from me. I know that, so one of my draws towards Double Fine is they're just kind of a studio that is naturally drawn to my temperament. And so one thing that we started doing recently is uh, we'll, we'll stream games on Twitch. We do this thing called Double Fine Game Night every Thursday night at five where we'll pick a couple of games and we'll just play them on Twitch and people will come in and chat and just watch us play them. And what I like about that is just, these are things that I, I enjoy doing. Uh, and Double Fine is very much a, a studio about being a part of the community and, and trying to do stuff for the community that may not be done already, but that may be valuable. And, because the studio really explores that kind of stuff. I, I, I love it a lot and I'm fortunate enough to be here and be a part of it. So uh, if you look up Double Fine stuff, you'll see me pop up every so often in these things. Like one of the cool things that Double Fine did that I think I mentioned earlier was uh, we had this whole documentary series called The Double Fine Adventure, which took us through the process of a, of a game that was kickstarted. It was a huge Kickstarter at the time. And then they documented the whole process of making the game. And so you got to meet a lot of people in the studio through that. There were a lot of interviews and stuff and it. That, that documentary was completed prior to my arrival here. But the studio is still very, very forward about doing things like that. Like for Psychonauts 2, which is our next big crowdfunded project, we're going to do another documentary for that. And so I'll probably show up intermittently throughout that documentary series as it gets underway. But because I'm Double Fine itself is so naturally attuned to my own interests, if people just look up the studio either on Twitter or watch our Twitch or even some of our YouTube videos, you'll you'll probably see me pop up more and more through there because I like doing I like doing these things and Double Fine's a good outlet for that. So that's where you'll see me more than anywhere else. And then, do you have any uh, other parting thoughts or anything that you want? professionals or the students or people that are soon to be students, anything you feel that they should know? And I think the stuff we went over is kind of like the core parts. I think one thing we didn't go over a whole lot, which is incredibly beneficial, 
which you mentioned towards the end, was that social networking stuff. It's pretty good. It's just kind of how networking happens now. And I used to think networking was like this BS kind of disingenuous endeavor that people would do. But it's kind of really cool because the internet was always has always been a cool place where people with similar interests can can meet and, and communicate and they're interact and, and talk. And it's really cool to just find people online who are other creatives and just build that rapport. Uh, and I see that a lot of people either who are a little bit older or just a lot of people that I know personally, they haven't taken to social media stuff quite as much as like current young people are. And I'm realizing there are a lot of people who, who have a lot of like really significant relationships that have turned into creative endeavors that started out on social networking stuff. So, you know, find the people who are interesting to you and look at what they put online. A lot of people who are active online are also reactive and uh, will communicate back if you are interested in learning from them. So, you know, listening to podcasts is a great way to learn, but it's really cool to have this access to ask people questions directly, either through Twitter or even Instagram is great for communicating and people's YouTube channels as well. Like there's all these cool things that are still relatively new. Uh, and I think people who look into that stuff and take advantage of this new, really accessible means of interaction will probably do very well down the line as well. Well, Michael, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. It was a pleasure interviewing you. Yeah, this was really cool too. Yeah, thank you for having me. And that concludes part two of my interview with Michael Tucker. Special thanks again to Michael for being such a wonderful guest. And you can check out Michael's Twitter account as well as Double Fine's documentary by going to the show notes or the website and clicking on the links. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe in iTunes and also to leave a review. All of those reviews help more and more people to find out about the show. And thank you so much to everyone who has subscribed to the show and who has left a review and who has messaged me on Facebook and Twitter. I really appreciate it. I'm glad that all of you out there are enjoying the show. I'm enjoying finding good guests to bring on the show for you. So thank you. I appreciate it. And also, if you would like to donate to the show, you can check out www.theanimatedjourney.com and you can click on the Donate PayPal button on the right-hand side. Your donation goes directly into supporting the show by helping me to pay for web hosting costs and other technical costs associated with putting the show out every week. And another way of supporting the show is by supporting our sponsors, Amazon, Audible, Loot Crate, and Blueberry Podcast Hosting. If you're looking to buy anything online, if you want to check out an audiobook, or if you want the latest in geek and gaming gear, make sure to check out Amazon, Audible, and Loot Crate. Or if you want to host a podcast of your very own, you can check out Blueberry Podcast Hosting. All of our sponsor affiliate links are on the right-hand side of the website, so make sure to check them out. So thank you to everyone who has donated to the show thus far and who have supported our sponsors. It means a lot to me and it helps to keep the show up and running. So thank you to all of you for your support. And you can check out photos, links, and news happening in the world of animation by visiting the Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash The Animated Journey. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram by visiting at AnimJourney. And I set up a Tumblr, so you can check out the Tumblr account by going to www 
www.theanimatedjourney.tumblr.com. And if you're interested in seeing what I've been up to, you can visit my website, www.sketchysoul.com. You can check out my Tumblr, www.sketchysoul.tumblr.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Sketchy Soul, and you can see what I've been working on over at Instagram at Sketchy underscore Soul. So tune in next week. I have another very special guest that I know all of you will be very excited about. So until next time, be encouraged and have a great day, everybody. Bye.